Hi everybody, I'm Nick Atkin, Chief Exec here at Yorkshire Housing, and you're listening to Raising the Roof podcast, the show that brings business leaders and industry experts together to unpick the hot topics in housing and beyond. And today we're talking about equality, diversity and inclusion. And joining me today are are two guests who, who bring their own unique knowledge and perspective. First up is Lucy Malarkey. Lucy is the Managing Director of Women in Social Housing. Uh, Those of you in in housing will probably know that better as WISH. And that's a network for women working across social housing. And indeed, uh, several of my my colleagues have been members in in both current and former employment lives. Lucy is also one of the directors and co-founders of Positive About Inclusion CIC, and that's basically a, a not-for-profit social enterprise that provides EDI training and consultancy services. Lucy has now found her passion. She now works with organisations UK-wide delivering training, health checks and consultancy services. Because she's not busy enough, she's also a, a member of several national equality, diversity and inclusion steering groups and an active voluntary mentor and coach. But you know what it's like here at at Raising the Roof. We like to dig the dirt a little bit and share the facts that most people don't know about our guests. So that's the corporate gloss. The reality is that Lucy's real passion is shoes. Now, on a podcast, that's hard to portray. But she owns probably about as many pairs of shoes as Imelda Marcos. uh, For our young (laughs) listeners, Um, you'll probably need to Google who Imelda Marcos is. But needless to say, she owned lots and lots of shoes. But it doesn't stop there. She also designs and creates shoe clips that enable her to transform her already gargantuan collection of shoes um, and give them a new life. And she's also arguably the youngest person to have recognised Yorkshire television farming star Hannah Hawkeswell whilst on holiday in America back in the 1990s. I think it's fair to say, having viewed the clip, she, she's probably had a cocktail too many at the time that she meets her. And if you don't believe me, the proof was actually captured by the BBC and we're going to share the link on the podcast homepage. <laughs> so feel free to, to view it your leisure. I'm also delighted to say that we're joined today by um, Akin Thomas. Akin is the chief exec and founder of AKD and has been described uh, as many things, including a disruptor and a maverick. I think what we know is that underlying his this is a passion to enable and also to equip people to, to connect to, to their best me. As well as the strategic growth of his business, AKD, Akin spends lots of time supporting and advising execs and senior leaders. And indeed, one of his major achievements was launching the hashtag Tell Your Story report, which has been recognised as one of the most important pieces of research that looks into racism and sport. But equally significant was the session he delivered to our leadership team here at Yorkshire Housing earlier this year, which I've described widely as one of the three most thought-provoking sessions I've, I've ever attended. It was one of those moments that really, really landed and left you reflecting on how you do things and what's happening around you. But again, we try to dig the dirt. So something people might not know about Akin is that at university, just a couple of years ago, of course, he was a a promising triple jumper until one day he competed against somebody called Jonathan Edwards. Now, for those of you who are not sports geeks, Jonathan Edwards is the current world record holder for the triple jump. And once Akin realised what he was up against, um, he retired 
and decided to set up AKV instead. So, <laughs> um, so there's our guess. Uh, let's get into the issues with it, with a nice and easy warm-up uh, question on, on where society is at this snapshot in time. And I suppose the context to this is that 40 years ago this year, what was then the National Federation of Housing Associations published a report called Race and Housing, a Cause for Concern. And that was on the back of the Scarman report from 1981, which was published in following the, the Brixton riots. And at that time, interestingly, when you go back and read the report, the housing association sector committed to ensure housing services uh, were sensitive to the needs of diverse communities and the adequate provision of decent, affordable housing would be available for everybody who needed it. So, for our guest to kick things off, what, what, what do you think, if anything, has changed since then? And what needs to happen to ensure that we're not asking the same question in another 40 years' time? So, Lucy, I'll come to you first. First off, I can't even believe that was 40 years ago. You know, the sentiments that said then that are still relevant now, aren't they? I mean, a lot has changed. Obviously, it has in, in 40 years. But again, so much is the same. And what do we do to stop us having the same conversations? God, I don't even know that I can think of one single thing because absolutely providing decent, affordable housing, tailoring our services, what we provide to the diverse needs of the communities in which we work, that's as relevant then as it is now and it will be in the future. I mean, I think what's going to be, it's a slight segue, but I think what's going to be really interesting is when we see the results of the census, the latest census, um, you know, and the changes in population that we've seen through that and making us reflect then about, you know, what we were providing before, what we know now, what difference are we then doing? What tailoring are we doing to our services to reflect those changes in the communities? in which we, we are working. Yeah, I think it's a great point about the census. And I think, you know, we've seen, certainly at, at Yorkshire Housing, you know, we've seen quite a marked change in in the composition of our communities and in a very mm -hmm. positive way. But I think if you rely solely on census data, which, you know, we already know is, is out of date, because, you know, the census data is from, what, 12 years ago, then then clearly, you know, that's that's not reflective mm -hmm. of where we are now. So. Akin, come across to you. Um, same question, just just your reflections on where things are at the moment and what 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 stops us being in the same position in forty years' time. I think one of my first. I think there's two reflections that I, I want to start with. Firstly, is that we're the fifth largest economy in the world, and I think that's really important kind of context that actually because one of the things I believe is that the true definition of an economy or of a nation is how you treat your most vulnerable. And if you think about it, in 40 years, even though we've got richer as a nation, the treatment of the most vulnerable, even though there have been improvements, hasn't significantly changed. And I think for me, you know, the one thing that the, the, the seminal moment was Grenfell. Yeah. And I think it was the, the seminal moment. The fire was one thing, but the way in which people were perceived, yeah, the way in which people were handled, they were treated. It really was a stark reminder of how although there have been so much intention, good intention, and there's been so much activity, and there's been a lot of, lot of change, we haven't shifted that far. So yes, we have shifted, but I think the real test is when you have those kind of seminal moments, you look back and say, where are we compared to 40 years? And actually, have we moved so much? And I think that unfortunately, that made us hold a mirror up to ourselves as a society, as a sector, and it told a truth, which is an uncomfortable truth. In terms of moving forward, how do we ensure we don't have this conversation in 40 years time? 
I think, Lucy, you're right. There's, there are so many different facets to it. But I think one of the things is intentionality. How, how intentional are we going to be for real change? Because I think a lot of change has been because people had to, not because they wanted to. I think a lot of change has been around kind of ticking boxes to keep, I mean, to get funding or to keep people away. Yeah. Okay. And actually the real intention and the real desire for change for people who do not look like you, I think has been often a very intellectual exercise as opposed to a a true exercise. And that intellectual exercise has often happened at senior levels, but has in no way come down the rest of the organization. So how, I mean, I'm really interested in this. It's been a real sort of, Focus for Yorkshire Houses, certainly, you know, we came at this from quite a low starting point and joking aside, you know, your session was was a seminal moment for us. But, you know, what advice would you give to, say, people like me who are desperately sort of wanting to ensure that, that you know, we're not in this position in 40 years time and, and are very fortunate to be leaders in, in their organisation? What, what would you say to people like me who are listening into this podcast? You know, what what should they be doing? How should they be really driving that through their organisation? I think the key is for for it to be understood and for organisations to, you know, actively get people to understand that inclusion is everyone's business. Mm-hmm. That, it, you know, it's not the HR team. It's not the exec. It's not the board. It's everybody. You know, and it's a bit like that whole, you know, JFK visiting NASA back in the 60s, yeah. meeting the janitor who yeah. understood that it was his job to put, help to put a man on the moon. It's yeah. the same. And I, I'm going to have to share a story because I love this. It's a friend who rang a large public sector organization a couple of years ago. And she wanted to find out who the lead for EDI was in this business. And so she spoke to the person at the contact center, said, can you put me through to whoever's responsible? And the person who answered the phone at the contact center, and this for me is a Nirvana, they said, we're all responsible for EDI here. How can I help? I mean, isn't that just lovely? Obviously what that person meant, they didn't mean I know everything about you know, the Equality Act 2010, I can recite Section 2.6B, all of that. What they knew is that this is about respect. This is courtesy. This is customer care at the nth degree. You know, at the basis, at the heart of what of this is, you know, there are those key components. And that's what I think that person understood. And I think when any business has everybody understanding that alongside engaging in conversations about all of this, that's when an organisation get it right. That's what makes the most difference. That's an example, Lucy. Yeah, really, really, really good. Akin, come across to you. So it's very much mirroring what Lucy said, that, um, yes, you have a very pivotal role in this whole process, yeah? But the reason why many organisations get it wrong because it stops with the chief executive and a few people who are passionate and intentional, but it doesn't go any further. But also for leaders, it's about, are you willing to do the right thing? And this is hard because one of the things... I have seen on my journeys is that when I meet leaders who are comfortable in their own skin and have a certain level of achievement, they then start to be able to scan their horizon on behalf of others. I've also met a lot of leaders who are on their way up. And in some ways, when they're on their way up, it's about me. Now, the challenge is this, is that when you're on your way up, and this is not for everybody, this is just a, but hopefully a reflection, yeah? Are you still willing to do the right thing on the way up because when you're willing to do the right thing there often is a personal cost one of my somebody um i call her we talk about allyship yeah her name is lisa wainwright she used to be the ceo of basketball england basketball and basketball is one of the most played sports in this country and yet the most underfunded and 
she called out racist behavior and decision-making in regards to basketball. And it cost her dearly, it cost her a job, you understand? But she was willing to do the right thing. Now, the question is this, as leaders, because fundamentally, I believe that leaders have to have that as an intrinsic part of who they are to do the right thing. Unfortunately, most leaders don't because of the personal cost, because of the social capital, because I've got to pay a mortgage, <laughs> because of status, because of all these plethora of other things. And also, you know, it's like if you look at certain cultures, certain cultures will say, why would we be the first ones to go? Let others go before us and maybe we're, we're following their trails, yeah? Whereas other kind of cultures are like, yeah, let's do this because it's the right thing. There's so many things like that. So I think those things are, for leaders in those positions, I think it's, it's, it's a fundamental decision that they have to make, which will have a massive impact upon the culture of the organisations and the decisions that are made. You both absolutely nailed it there for me. And I think I've, I always view things as, as being incredibly fortunate and lucky to, to be in the in the position that I am. And I always view it as a bit of a, like a caretaking role almost. Any leader just has the responsibility to, to take the organisation from where they found it to, to hopefully a better place, then pass the, the keys on to somebody else to, to do that. So, yeah, it just, just absolutely resonates in terms of what you've both said there. Um, absolutely great. I knew that I knew that would get us warmed up nicely. So I'm going to I'm going to move us along to 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 the next sort of area. I, I just wanted to explore really, which is just generally how important what what sort of value or weight would you attach to to lived experience? Where do you think all that sits in terms of how people mm. behave, how people act, and and what the sort of values base are. So, either of you jump in. It's a, it's a completely open question. I think it's really interesting because obviously lived experience has been something that's really manifested for the majority in the last kind of two years, but for the for a significant minority, has been something that's been with them all of their lives. I think lived experiences are crucial because what it does for me, it creates a culture of truth. And what I mean by that is that many people see their experience as the truth. In doing so, they see other people's experiences as either untruths or in sometimes lies. What do I mean by that? It is really interesting when you hear people talking about their lived experiences. And often what you hear is, are you sure? Maybe you're making it up. Maybe you're imagining it. It couldn't be so. It was interesting. I was at a um, conference yesterday and American guy, white American guy, basically got to Heathrow and wanted to go to East London, yeah? So he jumped in a taxi. In front of him was a woman in a hijab, and she wanted to go to East London, and the taxi refused to take her. So the taxi driver beckoned to him, and he said, I'm going to Stratford. So I'm going, yeah? He said, no problem at all. You can jump in. He goes, but she wanted to go to the same location as me, and yet you're willing to take me, yeah? Now, what happened is that he thought about it, and he, and he said that he then decided to make a post on LinkedIn, and what came back was a lot of viciousness that came at him in terms of your lying. This can't be true. A London capital driver would never do that. And so therefore, immediately that this lived experience was basically diminished, othered, denied. And I think that's why lived experiences are so important. But they've got to be within a context. And for me, the context is really important. And there's two elements to the context. The first one is this. People must be allowed to tell their stories unapologetically. And that takes real courage because often what's happened, especially post-George Floyd, a lot of people are asked to tell their stories, but actually they felt muted. So even though they were given a platform, because they've been muted all of their lives, it was very hard to then turn up the volume. The second thing that's really important is that you listen without filters. Because what we try to do when we hear other people's lived experiences, we try to filter it through our lens 
as opposed to simply hearing somebody else's experience. And that's why I think it's really important because then suddenly the culture of truth in terms of what does it mean to work for this organization is expanded beyond just my normality and it allows other normalities to come into play as well. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, I love that. Remove the, remove the filters and, and truly listen to the lived experience. It's bang on. Absolutely, 100% agree. I think, you know, lived experiences are authentic and that's that's so important. But that listening and then turning that into action is the next step, isn't it? So actively listening and converting that empathy or that understanding into action. And that's where I think a learning curiosity and curiousness is so important to go with lived experience because, you know, people have lots of lived experience of all sorts of different things. But unless we have an open mind and we're curious and we're interested and we we want to learn about difference and then we listen truly, honestly, uh, without our lens, as far as we can possibly remove that to really hear somebody, then that's when you, you can move from action to do something about it and make that lived experience more of a shared experience even though you haven't lived it yeah absolutely absolutely and i can can I come back to you probably a bit, bit unfairly but one of the things i took from the session that you did with us at easter this year was about unconscious bias it was just one of those that just absolutely removed a whole range of filters for me but don't know if you just just want to sort of share with our listeners the way that you so eloquently explained that will be much better than me trying to relay it so I'll, I'll hand back to you okay so personally i'm challenged by unconscious bias so when i say i'm challenged by it i do not say that i don't say it is a real thing and i don't say yeah so i acknowledge it however i believe that often it can be used as a smokescreen for conscious bias because when you made that decision to say, well, she's a woman, she may get pregnant, you know, so and so, you know, so and or well, he's got a disability and like may need medical appointments, yeah, it's all very conscious. When I've seen people's CVs ripped up because their name was one that didn't look like an English name and so therefore was put into the bin, that was a very conscious decision. And so I think that we've got to be really careful. So as I said, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think that conscious bias is not being talked about. And I think that conscious bias is the thing that actually we, one of the things that we need to deal with. And by rolling out a lot of unconscious bias training, my question is this, has it really changed much? So for me, I think there are certain things that I've, I've started to talk about entitlement as well, because I think that one of the big issues that we're not talking about is entitlement, where there are certain sectors of, of our society who believe they are entitled to certain positions yeah. and then this woman comes along and has the audacity to think that she has the right to compete for this job as well yeah. and so for me it's just about I, it's just expressing some caution around unconscious bias not not saying it doesn't exist but actually i think we need to be talking more about conscious bias because that is a very tangible thing which is happening on a day-to-day -day basis is in a lot of decision making but we have this smoke screen which allows us to maybe kind of hide behind it Absolutely. And I was also sort of really one of the key takeaways from your session was um, not wishing to, to sort of reveal the value that you bring <laughs> in the sessions. But one of the, one of the things that you, you did say, which really struck me was as soon as you become aware of something, it's no longer unconscious bias. It's and it was like one of those moments where you just go, oh, that is yeah. just so on the money. So, yeah. Um, so that's, thanks, Akin. Sorry, I know we've, uh, we've gone, gone down a little bit of a, a different path, but it's all great stuff there. I want to come next, really, I suppose, to how we make change happen. And one of the ways is, is obviously to have a strategic approach. 
a vision about where you want to be and then the the strategy really is the journey to to how you you make that vision a reality lots and lots of organizations my own included got some really good documents some really good strategies that you read i suppose from your perspective and from what you've seen both of you given the vast number of organizations that you've worked with and and the great stuff you've seen but also perhaps the not so good stuff you've seen what are the biggest challenges when actually making those strategies real and happen and, and in some areas what does success look like you know when you've seen good examples of success yeah just how do we make it real turn it from a very sort of well-written document into reality but actually then what what sort of success measures do you think could be could sit alongside that what i think and what i see is actually confidence being one of the biggest challenges you know not confident in writing the words because you're right you can see some wonderfully beautifully articulated documents but it's confidence in actually doing something and what what i see over and over again is that confidence results in hesitancy which means that somebody doesn't do anything and a lot of it is about fluency and about language so what we hear over and over again is, well, is there just a list of words that we can say? Just give me a list of what I can and what I can't say now and jobs are good and then I'll crack on. And and the lack of confidence from people feeling that they haven't got the language, they don't know exactly what to say, they don't know everything, they don't have lived experience means that they can't talk about something. So therefore, they just don't talk about it. And talking is the most important thing, I think, to really bring a strategy to life is having conversations internally. So sharing that lived experience, learning from that lived experience, hearing about that lived experience, you know, be that our customers, be that our members of staff, that brings a strategy to life that makes it real. But if none of that's going to happen unless you have the confidence and the the vulnerability as a leader, I think so important to be able to say, I might not know everything about gender identity and I put my hands up to not knowing everything I might get the words wrong but actually it's not going to stop me engaging in a conversation about this and that's I think the most important thing absolutely and that again you know not wishing to to reveal all of uh, Akin's secrets but you know that was one of the, the key takeaways from session that we had with with Akin earlier this year and that has interestingly changed some of the narrative in the organization and indeed you know I now I, for example, we've got a, an EDI champions group and I, I just sit down with them each time they meet uh, for the first half hour until they throw me out and they've had enough of me. Um, but I'm able to just have a very, in a very safe environment, conversation and ask lots of questions to, to aid mm-hmm. my understanding and also where the, where the organisation's heading. So, yeah, absolutely recognise everything you've said there, Lucy. Absolutely mm-hmm. bang on the money. Do you know, Lucy, you use the analogy of the, uh, the janitor at NASA. Um, that's so important because, you know, the, pr- the problem with most organisations is that they just want to write a document and move forward. Yeah. There's, there is actually no vision. There's no yeah. compelling vision that people get excited by. That janitor was excited. So you know that, you know, by the, yeah. that statement, he was excited to get up every day and be part of something. We have not created a compelling vision for our colleagues to become excited about. And therefore, it's, it's meaningless to them. This is just another, here we go again. This is another thing, yeah? As opposed to, this is something I can really get my teeth into. And so we have to create a big why for our organizations. And the reason I like the word compelling vision, because compelling visions are both exciting but, and scary at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think if you think about DNI, that's what DNI is. It's exciting and scary at the same time, yeah? Because, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to do some amazing stuff. And there's also plenty of opportunities to get it really wrong. And it's navigating that terrain, but not navigating it as an individual, navigating it as an organization. 
that's one thing. I think the other thing is this, if we're going to keep it real, we do not allow everyone to see themselves in this new tapestry. The challenge we have is that many people, when they hear diversity and inclusion, they check out because they believe they've been excluded from the experience, from the new experience, from the new foundation. And if you check out, that means that actually I am not, I don't want to know. I'm not part of this. But if you check out and you're a manager, or if you check out and you're a leader, that's profoundly dangerous. Because what you're going to do, you're going to bunker in, do things just to keep Nick away, continue to recruit in your own likeness because it's safer. You will take on somebody as a token gesture. You will probably try to set them up to fail because then you can be, I told you so. And this all stems from, I don't see myself in this new image. One of the things we talk about is white male extinction. A lot of white males are scared of this new agenda because all the narrative, they don't see themselves in it. And we're not, we're not addressing that. And I, until we address that, because if the decision makers are white males and they're saying, well, I'm not part of this agenda and the, the drawbridge is up, then you've got a problem. Yeah, and it, I, I suppose it's just people not recognising that this is about just bringing everybody in. Um, it's not about excluding one particular group. As somebody who who could be could be at risk in, in terms <laughs> of that that, uh, that vision that you've painted there, I think. And I think you know, fortunately, I've got I've got Yorkshire as as, as you know, one of my protected groups, so that's <laughs> do, uh, that doesn't able to create an exception for me. But I think you're absolutely right, and I think you know there is that whole thing about the fact that. I struggle with all of this, I suppose, if I'm being honest with you, because I, I just mm -hmm. look at people as people. And, and you know, all you want are the best skills around you. You know, as, as a leader of a business, I suffer from imposter syndrome like many people do. I can't believe how fortunate I am to, to do the job that I do. I'm only able to deliver what I deliver because I've assembled talented people around me. So mm -hmm. I'm not bothered who they are, what the backgrounds are, where they come. I'm just interested in have I got the right skills to to deliver the vision that I want for for the organisation. And and it's really interesting that sometimes you you almost don't realise that in terms of when you're going through through processes, particularly recruitment process. But I do think there's also a risk. I think you're right. There is a risk on recruitment because you do generally really have to stop yourself and i think this is just a human nature thing i don't think this is necessarily any particular individual but you know you do look at your existing organization and think well we want to grow more of of what mm -hmm. we've got but that's not always necessarily the right thing let me give you an uh, link to recruitment and this is a statement that you will hear a lot but we want the best person the minute you talk about diversity and inclusion the minute you talk about we need more women in a in certain positions, the fix is, yeah, but we want the best person. So deeply ingrained in that statement is this. People who are not like me are likely not to be as good as me. We hear it all the time. And I think that's, you yeah, know, because the minute, the defense to diversity and inclusion, but we want the best person. So therefore, and again, this is where it gets a little deeper. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is that when you hear that statement, what is the motivation? What is the what is driving that conversation? And I'm going to leave that one there because otherwise I'll get kicked off this. <laughs> no, I mean, you never I, get kicked off. <laughs> I think to add to that, I think that line managers, you know, the people managers in an organization are absolutely critical. You know, they're they're the eyes that you can't be, Nick, 
as chief mm -hmm. exec across the business. They're the people who have to be confident around challenge, particularly. They're the ones who set the tone. And it doesn't matter what you, Nick, say, what wonderful words you've got on your strategy, on your website, whatever, what the board say. If the people who work there don't feel it, then that yeah. all counts for absolutely nothing. So the, the people, people in any business are absolutely critical to success. And I think the other thing, just to go back to the first point that was made there, is about that, you know, making it not a bolt-on. Absolutely. For a strategy to work, it can't be a bolt-on for staff. It's got to be the way we do things around here. And I think my top tip for organizations is about using your own corporate architecture, the language that you've got in your business, yeah. the values that in housing associations all link to social justice are perfectly mm. translatable into specifics and action and, and articulate why we're doing what we're doing. And then when I think you can articulate to all of your staff, we're doing this because this is fundamentally who we are and what we do, and it's all of our business. That's when you can really bring a strategy mm -hmm. to life. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things about strategy is this, is that strategies are clearly about moving forward. But in the moving forward, too many organisations ignore the past or try to brush issues under the carpet. And you may have a lot of wounded people, damaged people, based upon what's happened in the organisation before, and this strategy, they don't connect with it because they are still left damaged. There is often some healing in terms of whether it's like mental health, whether, you know, I mean, how many people have organizations really damaged when it comes to their mental health? And yet they then kind of move forward and they have no regard for what's happened previously. And I think that's one of the important things with a strategy that actually it has to, yes, clearly move forward. But in terms of the execution of a strategy, we have to acknowledge where are we now? Yeah. What are the, what's the impact that we've had on people now? One of the, I mean, like, um, we're about to do a piece of work with a major logistical company. And the first thing we're starting with is we got it wrong. That authenticity, that honesty is so important. Yeah. And, and you, you're both absolutely bang on the money. You know, George Floyd, seminal moment. Grenfell, seminal moment for organisations. And I think, you know, certainly with following George Floyd, you know, Yorkshire Housing, that was a seminal moment for us. We sort of said, you know what, we are not good enough. We are not where we need to be in terms of how we're operating as an organisation. And that, as you might remember, was right in the middle of lockdown as well. But also at the, same, at the point where you can't physically get people together. You know, but we were absolutely determined to do that. You know, it was one of those moments. Can I just very quickly, I knew this I knew this would be great. And you had a <laughs> cracking guest today. And sure enough, you've delivered in bucket loads. And I'm I'm going to squeeze the max out of you. But um, I'm conscious that the clock's ticking against us. So just a quick one, because we've spoken quite a lot about, you know, organisations and, and particularly the, the employer side. But I'm also interested in the customer side. And I know I can, right at the, the start of this, this podcast, you, you talked about Grenfell being a seminal moment. It absolutely is. Just very quickly, you know, what advice would you give to the housing sector to rebuild some of that trust and confidence mm. with our customers? Because some of the issues that came out of Grenfell, we know, have been also prevalent in all parts of our society. So any advice you'd give for our listeners, particularly those who are in you know positions where they can make some quite significant changes to organisations, what would you say to them in terms of rebuilding that trust and confidence with customers? One of the things, uh, one of the, I was very fortunate that we actually um, facilitated the London Fire Brigade conference, the first conference after Grenfell. And um, we did, we had 300 leaders, yeah. And it was a very poignant moment yeah. in terms of them having to pivot. And one of the things that we were looking at, a lot of the kind of outcomes and the feedback, et cetera. And one of the things that was really, really important was this, yeah, stop talking at us and talk to us. 
And there, the layer before that is this, how we perceive people. When you look at Grenfell, issues of race, religion, socioeconomics, immigration, we're really quite mm -hmm. prevalent in terms of the narrative. So therefore there was this perception upon them. And the reality is, is that, that you deal with some of the most vulnerable people in, in, in society and there are perceptions upon them. Okay, let me ask you this question, yeah? We often use the term disadvantage to term particular communities. Would you want to be perceived as equal to someone who is disadvantaged? I think most people would answer no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And actually that actually plays out in society, doesn't it? If we're being honest. Mm -hmm. And that perception immediately creates this kind of them in us. And that's why EDI is so important because the EDI starts to just transform and morph a new type of relationship where I need to know who you are as an individual, as a yeah. person, as a human being. I need to understand your story because when I understand your story, I can better be able to think about how can I best serve you? But if we have never really understood our customers, so we understand them in terms of actually, okay, we have 50% that are male, this number of people are unemployed, such and such. So we have these kind of, and I understand it's difficult, but when we start to understand the stories of people and their lived experiences, the way in which we will create services will be fundamentally transformed. And suddenly we're having a conversation uh, as opposed to being spoken at, you're transforming services. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? How fortunate we are in the housing sector to have that fairly unique relationship with our customers that we can do that. We have the capacity to, you know, on the ground to really know those stories for individuals, you know, housing officers, whatever we call them in whatever organization we work, have that ability. I think as leaders, if we can then provide the framework for which those staff are able to have the autonomy to a certain degree to be able to respond mm -hmm. effectively, then mm -hmm. it's a win-win, isn't it? And we've got we've got the mechanisms, we've got the structure, we've got the unique relationship, we're fairly unique. So there's nothing stopping us. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What it means is that we don't have to measure everything. Let me give you this kind of off-piece example. In Dubai, do you know they have a, a, a government ministry for happiness? Wow. No. They have an official, yes, they do. They have a government ministry for happiness. The Sheikh has decided that, and basically he has dictated that if my people are happy, they will be tucked in well-being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, there's this mindset in terms of actually understanding the state of our nation in terms of from a happiness perspective. If we were to be brave and say, actually, if we were to really understand our people as people, surely then what we design is services that are amazing and brilliant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to statistics, as opposed. So therefore, then fundamentally, your relationship with your people starts to change because actually, Nick, I need to know your story. I, I share my story. And I, if I understand your story, then actually, wow, maybe if we tweak this, then actually the service you will get from us will go from being okay to brilliant. Yeah. And often those tweaks are not massive, are they? Yeah, absolutely. It's cracking. And I've got to say, I do these podcasts and I'm normally able to summarize one or two key takeaways. I've got five from this one, so I'm going to have to be really quick. <laughs> no but our five sort of key takeaways. Leaders have to do the right thing and call things out. People see their own experience as, as the truth and everybody else's as, as lies. Just, I was cracking that. Just that, that whole sort of how you perceive things. Remove the filters and listen to the lived experience and turn that learning into action. So that was amalgamating the things that both of you said there. Create a compelling vision for colleagues and get them excited about it, not just the dry, sort of boring stuff. And finally, stop talking at us and start talking to us. Just such a, some cracking takeaways there. 
but because I'm from Yorkshire, I do like to, to squeeze the most out of everybody. So one final one. Uh, it's the quick fire round. It's a quick fire question. So I'm going to come to you first, Lucy, on this one. Um, <laughs> if you could walk in somebody else's shoes for the day, who would it be and why? I'm going to be Justin Young, but not on any old day. Now, Justin Young is the lead singer of The Vaccines, who are my favourite band and a guitarist as well. And the day that I'm going to be in his shoes is the day that he's at Glastonbury on the pyramid stage in front of 100,000 who are, you know, and I'm singing and playing guitar. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because I can't do any of those things. And I just imagine that would be amazing. I can honestly say, coming into today, I didn't think you'd be saying that. So great, thanks. <laughs> Akin, I'm going to come to you with the same question. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go for, I'm going to go Jonathan Edwards today. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I had money on it. I had money on it. <laughs> you understand? But I may kind of give him an injury. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Akin, Lucy, massive thanks to both of Thank our guests you. today. What a Thank session you. it's been. It's been absolute rich source of discussion and key takeaways from it but sadly it is time to close the door on this particular podcast as i say a massive thanks to both of our guests and, and equally thank you to you our listeners for choosing to tune into this episode please remember that all of our previous episodes from both season two and season one are available via your usual podcast providers our next episode is all about one of my favorite subjects to rant about on twitter customer service so beware transpennine express we're coming for you next so please remember to hit subscribe and ensure you don't miss a thing well that's it for now it's a wrap thanks very much Take, Take care. care. Thank, Thank you. So you. Much. Bye. Bye-bye.